Good morning, church. It's so good to be with you here. My name is Michael Yang. If we haven't met before, I'm the campus pastor for Tap Nights, our Saturday evening church plant here in Richmond. And it's been a while since I've been back with you like this. So I actually want to start off with just a few quick updates about what God has been doing with us and for us at Tap Nights. Uh, last month, 50 plus of us, we went camping together in Squamish. We called it Tap Nights into the Woods Edition. Oh man, it was so fun, y'all. We had a great time out in God's creation, slowing down and worshiping, fellowshipping, and just getting some rest. Another thing that God has been working in and through us is in the last couple months, we've been privileged to start a relationship with the modular housing in Richmond, along with some of you here from TAP Richmond. So as part of this Flourish ministry, we're starting to see what it looks like when we love our neighbors as ourselves and to seek the flourishing of people and places. And it's been a challenge at times, but also a gift. So that's sort of what's happening at TAP Nights. But this morning, here at TAP Richmond, we are closing out our summer sermon series on discipleship. And so I get the privilege and pleasure to wrap us up with that. So as some of you know, our vision at TAP is to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. We believe that discipleship is what it's all about. We would bet the farm on discipleship. And a disciple is an apprentice of Jesus, a follower of Jesus. So throughout the summer, we've been meeting a number of different people who have apprenticed themselves to Jesus. People in the New Testament, but also people in our own community. So this morning, we're going to meet a disciple by the name of Judas. Maybe you've heard of him before. He's famous, if not infamous. And so this morning, what we're going to look at is, we're going to start with Judas and his story, and how I would actually call him the disillusioned disciple. So we'll talk a bit about what disillusionment and discipleship, how that kind of clashes or comes together. Then we'll look at how Judas had this transactional view of God and what that means. Then I want to tie in a bit of my story and how it connects to this. And then we'll close with some implications for disciples here and now. Capiche? Okay? So that's where we're headed. Now, prior to the events of Jesus' trial and crucifixion, we don't hear much from Judas or about Judas. We know he's called and commissioned as one of uh, the 12 disciples by Jesus. And then it's only mentioned briefly, but in John's gospel, we're told that Judas was the keeper of the money bag. He was the treasurer. Anybody here involved in finance or a treasurer? Okay, we see you. We see you. Okay. So how does this disciple of Jesus, one of his closest companions, end up selling Jesus out? Well, as you read the Jesus story, one of the most powerful and high drama moments happens when Mary of Bethany, so Mary and her siblings Lazarus and uh, Martha, they're close friends with Jesus. And at one point at a dinner, Mary anoints Jesus with this bottle of very expensive perfume. And this evoked two different reactions. 
To the disciples, especially to Judas, this was a downright reckless and inconsiderate thing to do because they thought that expensive perfume, you could have sold it and given it to the poor. So they rebuke Mary. But Jesus, Jesus rebukes them. His response is one of endearment and gratitude. She has done a beautiful thing to me, he says. Because for Jesus, this anointing was meaningful. It was essentially preparing him for his upcoming death. Mary, in her own way, grasped what Jesus was doing, what he was up to going to the cross. But the other disciples, they missed it, especially Judas. He missed it. Because immediately after this part of the story, we're told by Matthew, then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Why did Judas betray Jesus? This is one of the great mysteries of Christianity. And unlike most mysteries, it's not a who done it. We know who did it. It's a why done it. Why did he do this? Was it because of the money? Was it because of greed? I don't think so. You know, most scholars would say 30 pieces of silver. It, it was a decent amount of money, but it's hardly enough to sway Judas's loyalty and three years of close companionship with Jesus. No, rather, in the last few decades, more and more Bible readers and scholars suggest that Judas betrayed Jesus not out of greed, but out of disillusionment. Disillusionment. So let's define our terms here. Disillusionment can refer to the condition of being disenchanted, the condition of being dissatisfied or defeated in expectation and hope. It can literally mean to free from illusion, and it can also mean to cause to lose naive faith and trust. So I want to make the case that Judas is above all the disillusioned disciple. You know, it's interesting. We call him the traitor, that he betrayed Jesus, and he did. But if you had interviewed Judas at this moment in the story, he might easily have said, he was the one who was betrayed. Jesus betrayed him. Jesus betrayed him. Because you see, Judas had this vision for the Messiah. He had this vision for who Jesus was supposed to be for the kingdom of God and his own place in it. The only problem with that vision was that it wasn't real. It was an illusion. It wasn't tied to reality. You know, N.T. Wright says we shouldn't peer too closely into Judas's motives because the Gospels never fully unpack it for us. But he does offer some insights. N.T. Wright says it may have been partly an angry disappointment at the fact that Jesus, having caused such a stir in Jerusalem, was now talking again about going to his death instead of planning that great moment when he would have taken over Jerusalem and become king. Maybe Judas had hoped, as James and John had hoped, 
that he would be Jesus' right-hand man in the new regime. And so in light of all that, Judas is disillusioned. Are, are we tracking here so far? Yep. And so, following this moment, this anointing at Bethany, Judas waits for an opportune time to betray Jesus. And that's where we get that famous scene in the Garden of Gethsemane where Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss. So Matthew tells us, when, while he, Jesus, was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. There is so, there is so much going on in this passage, but I think Jesus' response should stop all of us in our tracks. Do what you came for, friend. Why would Jesus call this traitor friend? I think Jesus calls Judas friend because of the simple reason that Jesus loves Judas. Jesus loves Judas. Jesus does in this moment what he has always taught his disciples to do, love your enemies. Love them as a friend, even when they rip out your heart and stomp on it. Jesus loves Judas. But Jesus is arrested. He undergoes this sham of a trial that will result in his brutal execution on the cross. And that's heartbreaking. But, but the next thing we hear about Judas is also heartbreaking. Because Matthew says later on, when Judas who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? They replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. So Judas knows he has sinned. Something stirs inside of him when he sees this innocent Jesus being condemned. So he returns the money. But then note that tragic end for Judas. Then he went away and hanged himself. These are the actions, not just of a disillusioned person, but a person entrapped in despair, who believes he has nowhere to run, he doesn't even turn to God, as you notice. There is no sense of directing himself to God in the midst of this. He's all isolated and alone. He's curved in on himself. Judas ultimately gives into his despair. And I think one reason why this happened to Judas was because he had ultimately this transactional view of God. He had this transactional view of God, which believes... If I do this, then God owes me that. 
If I do this, then God owes me that. If I pray enough, if I read my Bible enough, if I tithe, if I serve in ministry, if I be a good person, whatever that means, then God owes me. God owes me a good and comfortable life, that career I think I deserve, the family life I've always wanted, health, happiness, whatever you want to fill that blank in with. Judas, he had this kind of belief. And a transactional belief, ultimately, it's one of idolatry. It's what we would call idolatry, where we treat God as an idol, trying to earn God's love and rewards, trying to manipulate God to do our bidding. A transactional view of God focuses on God's hands, what God can give us, rather than God's face, who God is and being in relationship with God and delighting in that. Does that make sense? And so Judas, he shows us what happens when this transactional view, when it doesn't work out, when it doesn't add up, it will lead inevitably to disillusionment and despair. This view of God not only cost Judas his faith in Jesus, it cost him his life. Yeah, a very happy and cheerful sermon this morning, huh? What a great way to close out summer. Way to go. Okay, so you might be thinking so far in this sermon, okay, I get we want to talk about discipleship, but why are we looking at one of history's crappiest, if not the crappiest, disciple? I'm glad you asked. So uh, by the start of 2012, I had been a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, for about seven years. I love my Jesus deep down in my soul, all right? So I belonged to this church that I was happy to call home. I was serving weekly in our young adult ministry. I read my Bible. I prayed when I could remember to. I even had this little inkling down in the bottom of my gut, that perhaps, perhaps one day in a distant, distant, distant future, I might pursue pastoral ministry. I was on fire for God, to use a wonderful cliche. So, I was so excited for the start of 2012 of this new year, uh, and yet, over the course of the next few months, everything blew apart. To this day, I can't explain the, or give reason for the timing of it all or why it happened, but it started when a close friend of mine had something traumatic happen to them, something you wish would never happen to someone you know, and it really shook them up, and it really shook me up. And then not long after, my mom, who was living halfway around the world, she had a stroke, and then right after that, a friend of mine had lied to me about something very personal, and it was heartbreaking. And, and so all this packed together in a few months, along with some other things, first compounded to crack and then crumble my life into bits and pieces. And as the weeks turned into months, I got more and more angry at God. Because I thought, how could God allow these things to happen to people I care about and to me? Where was God in all of this? And this suffering left me questioning what I thought was good and true. 
who I could trust and rely on. Above all, it left me questioning who this Jesus was in the first place, and why would I follow him? Why would I be a disciple of his if this is what it meant? I became disillusioned with him because I thought all that devotion I was putting into that bank, all that devotion I was depositing was supposed to protect me from hardship. And so I felt betrayed by this Jesus. And so in response, I betrayed him. I started to live in a way that went directly against the way of Jesus. I would be one way while with my Christian friends and at church and a whole nother way elsewhere. And I'm even surprised, to be honest, I even kept going to church, was a part of the church. Looking back, that was definitely God's grace for me to stick that part out. You know, it's only later that I realized, oh, I had this, I had this transactional view of God. I didn't know it at the time, but I had put God in a formula. I thought God owed me. That's when you know you have a transactional faith. When you start to believe God owes you. And so I became disillusioned with God and things fell apart. I became, to use a very precise and technical term, pissed off at God. So fast forward a few months from the start of 2012 to April 2012, and the Kulch Theater in East Van was putting on this provocative play called The Last Days of Judas Iscariot. Has anybody ever heard of that play or seen that play? Oh, well, let me tell you about it then. Okay, so the official synopsis of the play reads this way. Halfway between heaven and hell, there's a place called Hope, where history's most infamous sinner, Judas Iscariot, stands trial. And in a courtroom that's as much ghetto as gospel, the witnesses are called Mother Teresa, Pontius Pilate, Sigmund Freud, to decide questions of forgiveness, mercy, and eternal damnation. (laughs) Yeah, come on now. Who wouldn't want to see that, right? And so my friends from church and I, we heard about it, and we knew we had to go. Also, this was 2012, early 2012, so there was a lot of controversy at the time uh, around uh, a certain book regarding heaven and hell, and it was written by an author whose name rhymed with, um, let's say, Bob Fell, okay? Now, maybe that's too Christian-y insider thing. Forget about it. Now, so my friends and I, We wanted to check out that play because we were curious about God, or at least really they were curious about God. I wanted to check out the play because I was furious at God. (laughs) Due to my own pride and isolation, my image consciousness, I... Only a handful of people really knew what I was going through, and, and maybe not even all the details. So when I went to see that play on hell, it was because my life felt like hell, and I wanted another reason to be angry at God. Do you ever have that feeling when you're mad, and you kind of want more reasons to be mad, so you feel like you're more right? <laughs> or at least you have a little more energy, right? So that's how I felt towards God. And so uh, we show up, to the cult, 
and Facebook, and it's kind of creepy that Facebook can keep track of all these things, but uh, Facebook says the exact day was Saturday, April 14th, 2012, because we posted a a picture that afternoon. And actually, in a moment, I'm going to show you the picture just to help you visualize where I was at the time. And I feel like, you know, our relationship... I've been here at the tap for three years, so I feel like at this point in our relationship, I can show you more sides of myself, okay? So let's just throw it up there. Why are you laughing? (laughs) Um, Yeah, so that's me that afternoon posing next to a poster of Judas Iscariot. He and I are both rocking the earring thing, so I was like, oh, okay, this dude has style. Um, Yeah, so... You can definitely say I had an affinity with Judas that morning. He was definitely my brother from another mother. And now, okay, so you have to understand, some people, when they go through suffering or crisis, they soothe out their suffering, right, through different things like drugs or partying or drinking or, or they can commemorate their crisis through getting a tattoo or buying something ridiculous. I, God only knows why, decided to triple bleach my hair blonde. Maybe I was trying to change how I looked on the outside to mask how I felt on the inside. Maybe, maybe I was just too into K-pop at the time. Whatever. Okay. So this is me back then. This is where we're at. So we get to the culch. We watch this play. And I am never the same again. Because intellectually speaking, this play was stimulating, right? For example, it suggested that the greatest sin of Judas was not betrayal, but his greatest sin was his despair. His greatest sin was despair. At one point in the play, Mother Teresa quotes Thomas Merton's wonderful riff on despair. She says this, despair is the ultimate development of a pride so great and so stiff-necked that it selects the absolute mystery of damnation rather than accept happiness from the hands of God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Now, there is something deeply transformative and redemptive about good art isn't there. When you encounter good art, something starts to happen. The play did what theater does best, the liveness of it all. And so here's another picture from that play of Judas and Jesus. And so I could hear the despair in Judas's voice that day, pictured on the left, as he refused to accept the forgiveness and love of Jesus seen on the right, I could see the pleading in Jesus' eyes for Judas to accept that forgiveness and love. And so the emotional impact is what stood out most to me. You see, the whole play felt like this emotional externalization of my interiors. All that anger, despair, bitterness, questions, doubts I harbored were set loose and on display in that theater. My emotions had names, faces, voices, and they paraded on stage. They took on flesh and blood. 
It's amazing what happens when word becomes flesh. And the haunting image I have from that play is near the end of the play. And so Judas is in hell at this time, and the play is saying that hell is despair and despair is hell, that wherever you are isolated and separated from God's love and presence, that's hell. So even in hell, though, Judas is not alone because Jesus is with him. The issue is that Judas is in this catatonic state. He doesn't respond to anything or anyone. He's frozen. He's trapped in his own despair. However, he begins to slowly respond to Jesus. And then they have this long and tortured conversation about whether Jesus ever loved Judas and was there for him. And so here's a snippet of the conversation. It reads this. Jesus, I'm not a normal person, Judas. And I'm not here to apologize. I am who I am and not what you demand me to be. I'm always going to be who I am and what I am. And when have you heard me deliver my message any differently, Judas? When? Judas, I just go away. Jesus, I won't go away. Judas, well, that'd be a first And so this scene is agonizing because it goes on and on and on. Jesus is trying to get through to Judas, and Judas almost emerges out of that icy shell, only in the end to withdraw back into that catatonic state, and he ends up being utterly frozen and unresponsive to Jesus. And the last scene of the play is this. Jesus sighs takes off his shirt, plunges it in the bucket, rinses it, and begins to wash Judas' feet. Jesus washes meticulously and with care. He washes and washes. Perhaps the water is mixed with tears. And the lights fade, and the play ends. And then it hit me in that moment. Jesus never left me. Jesus never left me. Just because I suffered, just because I sinned, didn't mean he left me or stopped loving me or the people I cared about. He has always been there working, wooing, washing. He is relentless in his reaching out. It was my own despair that I was trying to keep him away. And to see that despair projected in front of me in the form of this play, in that form of Judas, I saw myself. But I didn't want to be trapped like he was. I wanted to trust Jesus when he said that he would never leave me nor forsake me, that I would not be snatched out of his hand. And I came to understand that day in every sense of the phrase, Jesus loves the hell out of you. Yeah, Jesus loves the hell out of you. That's the good news of the gospel. Are you with me? And so what that means is 
betrayal and disillusionment and despair, they are just part of the story. (laughs) They just are. To be a disciple is to share in Christ's life, which includes betrayal and disillusionment and despair. Jesus is intimate with these things. And yet, to share in Christ's life also means these things don't have the last word. Because of the resurrection, there is no ultimate reason to despair. There is hope beyond the despair. There is new life. There is forgiveness. And there is grace. I also discovered that day another truth, that God is not transactional after all. God is transformational. God is transformational. It's not that if I follow Jesus, then God will help me avoid or erase my suffering. That's a transactional view. No, rather, following Jesus involves the transformation of suffering into strength, the transformation of frustration into fulfillment, the transformation of doubt into robust faith. And yet, this only happens in God's timing and in God's own way. We are invited to participate by surrendering to it all, to develop this robust kind of trust. No longer naive, because friends, it has witnessed both the cross and the resurrection. (laughs) You know, and, and this season, it changed everything for me. I am a disciple and a pastor today because of that season. Because, you see, Jesus not only met me through that timely play, but he actually used the church to help put me back together in the months and years following that. You know, after the play, I felt more comfortable to open up with a few more people and to share what was going on. And they listened to me. They didn't close their hearts and they loved me, and they stay connected with me. That's so important, staying connected. And the simple rhythms of weekly worship, of Friday night fellowship, of small groups, the rhythms of prayer and scripture reading, of obeying God's life-giving commandments, keeping in step with the Spirit, those things actually helped heal me, which to this day I find very ironic Because it's those very things that I thought, hey, if I did this, then God would reward me. It's actually these very things that became rewarding in of themselves, life-giving in of themselves. Because I no longer did those things to get something from God. I did it simply to be with God. Do you see the difference there? And so that redemption that I experienced in this season of my life, I knew For the rest of my life, I wanted to be around that redemption. I wanted to be a part of it. Disciples want to be around God's redemption. (laughs) And so that desire, it would evolve and take form over time to me being here with you today as a minister of the gospel. This gospel, I hope you are hearing this morning. All right. So in light of all this, what... What are some implications for us then as disciples? 
Do we go out and betray Jesus somehow? Do we seek out suffering? Do we also need to triple bleach our hair blonde? No, absolutely not. No, rather, the implication is to live. It's to live transformationally, not transactionally. And there are two ways we're invited to do this. You live transformationally first by asking God to destroy your illusions of God. <laughs> Ask God to destroy your illusions of God. The, the Bible talks a lot about idolatry because idolatry is a real thing. <laughs> and it's as real today as it's ever been in biblical times. And perhaps the Bible, uh, the idol most difficult to deal with for us is our idolatry of Jesus, our illusions about Jesus. What I mean is this, the ways we have turned Jesus into an idol who only operates according to our feelings and agendas and expectations and schedules. That's a tough one for me. You know, in the play, there's that wonderful line, right? Jesus says to Judas, I am who I am and not what you demand me to be. I'm always going to be who I am and what I am. Which means we have to allow God to be God as revealed in this Jesus. And that will lead Jesus to disappoint us in our wrong desires and thinking and living. It will lead Jesus to betray our values and understandings when it doesn't line up with his. Right? He isn't here to fulfill our wishes he isn't our genie. He's our Jesus. He's here to transform our lives and renew this world. Are you with me? And so I've got some diagnostic questions for you. I invite you to ask these questions of yourselves from time to time. Questions like, what transaction have you made with God? Where have you found yourself saying or demanding to God, you must be this and you must do this, right? Where have you said to God, if I do this, then you owe me that? Maybe another question is, honestly, who is Jesus to you? And is he allowed to be who he is? Or have we put him in a box? Friends, ask God, pray to God, for God to smash these illusions you have and give you God's real self. And when you're asking these things, what you're doing is you're engaging in what the Christian tradition calls repentance, turning from falsehood to the truth. And so tied into that, the second thing you can do to live transformationally is as you turn away from an illusion to God, may you turn and seek after God. May you, for God's sake, seek God. Right? So we've talked a bit about this. So often we focus on God's hands and not God's face, right? We want whatever it is God can give us, God's hands, but not necessarily God for God's sake. But the truth is a disciple seeks the face of God. That's just how it works. A disciple longs for, seeks the face of God. And the gospel says, Jesus is the face of God. And he's beautiful, good, and true. He's the most wonderful person you could desire. So friends, I implore you, start reading the scriptures again, if you haven't been. Dig into them, especially the gospels, 
or read them for the first time if you've never done it. Get to know who this Jesus really is. But don't just do that on your own. Do it with one another. Do it in your families, with your friends, in your small groups. Ask one another. Share with the people in your lives. Who is Jesus revealing himself to be in this season? That's why the church exists. We are here to help bear witness to one another our encounters with the living, resurrected Christ. And here's the thing, and we'll close with this, one last thing. After you gaze at the face of Jesus, then you can look down at his hands. But you don't look to see what he can give. Instead, you are moved by what you see. Because what do you see? You see nail-pierced hands. He gives you his sacrificial love. He gives you his all through what he has done on that cross. And the gospel says that's no illusion. That's ultimate reality at its most gracious. And encountering that grace every day again and again, it will make you want to live for this Jesus. And in living for him, you realize he is transforming you. He is transforming this whole world. Amen, church? Let's now turn our hearts to seek God's face in prayer. Gracious God, thank you for giving the space to explore what it means to be your disciples. Lord, we even give you thanks for the story of Judas, as painful and dark as it is. Even in this, we can come to know more about who you are, Jesus, your grace and forgiveness. So give us your spirit of hope and of courage and compassion to ask the hard questions and to seek the real you. Help us to end our transactions with you and instead be transformed so that we can join you in the renewal and transformation of our world. And all this we pray in faith in the redemptive and resurrected power of Christ. Amen. Amen.